teaching is from the Warrior's Heart Bible Study for Men. You can find us on the web at warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day. Jonathan Edwards, mercy. You could do semesters and semesters on Jonathan Edwards. And so um, today we're going to take a little bit of a tack, different tact on Jonathan Edwards. We, we talk often of the theologian and the academician and the preacher that is Jonathan Edwards. And that's great. And, and we all enjoy that kind of thinking. Maybe not at 630 in the morning, but, you know, normal times of the day. But I want to talk a little bit more about the man, about Jonathan Edwards as a, as a man, as a believer, because I think there's some things, you know, I don't know if you ever think this way, but I wonder what would happen, what would it look like if Jonathan Edwards, 18th century Puritan preacher, uh, could make it to 2015. If he could walk in today, of course, he'd be freaked out by a whole lot of things today. I'm telling you that right now. Um, but a Puritan in America in 2015, wow. But besides that, I think he would have some things to say to us as believers. And so today we want to look at the life of Jonathan Edwards uh, more than anything just to see what we can um, discover about uh, our own Christian life. Because really that's the point of this morning is for us to walk out of here as better men. And that's what we're hoping will happen. Well, I don't know how familiar you are with Jonathan Edwards, so I want to give you what's going to sound like an obituary, and it kind of is. But I want you to kind of hear about the life of Jonathan Edwards so that you can kind of get up to speed and, and we're kind of all on the same page on this. Jonathan Edwards was born in East Windsor, Connecticut to Timothy Edwards and Esther Edwards, the only son in a family of 11 children. So take that in for a moment. Ten sisters, no brothers. Yeah, bless him, Lord. He entered Yale University in September of 1716, which is interesting. When he entered Yale, it was not yet called Yale. Um, Yale became a benefactor while he was there. And by the time he left, it was actually named Yale. Uh, He entered Yale University when he was not yet, you ready, 13. He was 12. He went to Yale at 12, you know, like most of us. And he graduated four years later as valedictorian. He received his master's three years after that. So when he was 19, he had a master's degree. As a youth, Edwards was unable to accept the Calvinist sovereignty of God. He once wrote, from my childhood up, My mind has been full of objections against the doctrine of God's sovereignty. It used to appear like a horrible doctrine to me. However, in 1721, he came to the conviction, one he called a delightful conviction. He was meditating on 1 Timothy 1.17, and we're going to talk about that more here in just a little bit. Um, And he later remarked, as I read the words, there came into my soul, and was was as it were diffused through it a sense of the glory of the divine being, a new sense quite different from anything I have experienced before. I thought with myself how excellent a being that was and how happy I should be if I might enjoy that God and be wrapped up to him in heaven and be, as it were, swallowed up in him forever. What an incredible experience he had. From that point on, Edwards delighted in the sovereignty of God. Later, he recognized this as his conversion experience. In 1727, he was ordained minister of Northampton and assistant to his maternal grandfather, Solomon Stoddard. He was a studying minister, which meant that he served in the church as a minister, but really his job was to be a student, uh, not a visiting pastor. So his rule being 13 hours of study a day. In the same year, he married Sarah Pierpont, then age 17, daughter of James Pierpont, a founder of Yale. 
originally called a collegiate school. And today, in, or excuse me, in total, Jonathan and Sarah had 11 children. So Jonathan Edwards was one of 11 children who had 11 children. Solomon Stoddard died February 11, 1729, leaving to his grandson the difficult task of the sole ministerial charge of one of the largest and wealthiest congregations in the colony. Throughout the time in Northampton, his preaching brought remarkable religious revivals. Jonathan Edwards was a key figure in what has come to be called the First Great Awakening of the 1730s and the 1740s. Yet tensions flamed as Edwards would not continue his grandfather's practice of open communion. Stoddard, his grandfather, believed that communion was a converting ordinance. Surrounding congregations had been convinced of this, and as Edwards became more convinced that this was harmful, his public disagreement with the idea caused his dismissal in 1750. Yes, Jonathan Edwards was fired as pastor. Edwards then moved to Stockbridge, Massachusetts, then a frontier settlement, where he ministered to a small congregation and served as missionary to the Housatonic Indians, not Housatonian, okay, Housatonic Indians. There, having more time for study and writing, he completed his celebrated work, The Freedom of the Will. Did you realize, I don't know that a lot of people realize that it took the fact that Jonathan Edwards was fired from his job in a prominent church and went and served in a small church that led to him being the author that he became. And all the works that we have from Jonathan Edwards are a result of the time he had from being in a small church. You never know where opportunity is going to lie. Edwards was elected president of the College of New Jersey, later known by a little bit better name called Princeton, uh, in early 1758. He was a popular choice for he had been a friend of the college since its inception and was the most eminent American philosopher theologian of his time. On March 22, 1758, he died of fe- fever at the age of 54 following, does anybody know how he died? What led to his death? Any historians in here? Really odd following an experimental inoculation for smallpox. They experimented on him, and it didn't work. He was buried in the president's lot in Princeton Cemetery, where his son-in-law, Aaron Burr, would one day be buried. He's famous for the duel that ended his political career. Well, that's Jonathan Edwards. So if Jonathan Edwards walked in here today, and he said, all right, men, Let's be better men. Let's walk with the Lord better. What would he say? And so three things I have for you today that I think he would say. And number one, I'm going to start with what I believe was the, um, really the difficulty of Jonathan Edwards' life by his own admission, and that is this, pride. Pride can be a problem for any man. Jonathan Edwards was a student of perfectionism, which is a close cousin to legalism. And it defined his struggle with God. In Philippians 2.12, it says, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And I think that a lot of the fear and trembling, especially early on in the life of Jonathan Edwards, was centered around this idea of can I be enough? Am I enough? What do I need to do to be enough? And perfectionism and legalism really became a part of who he was. This Puritan ideal of completing the covenant of works with Adam is an idea that led through Jonathan Edwards' early life, and it meant what you do is very important. Now, we would often look at somebody and say, we can never judge a heart, but what we do is we look at the fruits of someone to determine what's in their heart, to determine if they are really a follower of Christ. And if anybody was a quality fruit inspector, it was the father of Jonathan Edwards. And so he grew up in that type of an environment. Uh, In fact, this is really amazing. When Jonathan Edwards had finished his, his uh, degree at Yale, he'd finished his master's degree, he had gone and served as a pastor, okay? After a period of time, a, a prominent, a more prominent position came up as a pastor, 
And Timothy Edwards, Jonathan Edwards' father, was really pushing for him to take this pastorate. What's amazing is even at that time, as Timothy Edwards was pushing his son to say, I think you need to come back and pastor this church, he was not yet willing, the father was not yet willing to let his son be an official member, congregate of the church, because he was not yet totally satisfied in the conversion of his son. You can be the pastor, but I'm not sure you're fully converted yet. That is the standard, the bar, that Jonathan Edwards grew up with. That even at that point, in all the things he had accomplished, all the things he had done in the Christian world, and the spiritual world, his father would not yet say, um, I see you as a perfectionist. I want to read this because I could never say this as well. Plus, I just want to really impress you with this big fat book. I didn't read it all, I promise. I read the first and the last page. No, I'm just kidding. This is what it says. In this context of declaring his exceeding sinfulness, Edwards offered some reflections on the differences between his mature faith and that of his early years. It is affecting to me, he remarked, to think how ignorant I was when I was a young Christian of the bottomless, infinite depths of the wickedness, pride, hypocrisy, and deceit left in my heart. Particularly the mature Edwards lamented, with insight on his most besetting sin, which he was not the only one to notice, by the way, I am greatly afflicted with a proud and self-righteous spirit, much more sensibly than I used to be formerly. I see that serpent rising and putting forth its head continually everywhere all around me. And that Edwards in his writings, especially uh, as he left young adulthood, wrote often of this problem of pride. You know, in John chapter 9, we see a picture of a man who's born blind and Christ comes to him. And the the question initially from the disciples is, was it this man's sin or was it his parents' sin that led to him being blind? And Jesus has a really incredible response. He said, it wasn't either one's sin. It was so that God could receive glory at this time. And so Jesus brings him forward. Jesus spits in the dirt. He creates mud. He puts it on this man's eyes. He sends him out. The man is healed and he can see. And what do the Pharisees say in verse 16? They say, this man, meaning Jesus, is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Because Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath. Okay, guys, hello. He just healed a blind man, Pharisees. But they don't see that. What do they see? You didn't keep the Sabbath. You see, we missed this miracle Because we're so focused on this legalistic idea of what you should be doing that we totally lost it. Perfectionism, legalism take root and they produce a crop of pride. Pride ultimately blinds us to the greatness of God. Pride ultimately blinds us to the greatness of God. I love what happens later in John chapter 9 when the Pharisees bring this man back before him to testify and they're like all right this jesus guy is he a prophet and he's and this is what he says he says i don't know if he's a prophet but i know this i was blind but now i see that's what i know you see he didn't miss the greatness of god he didn't miss that in the moment god did something amazing there and i think jonathan Edwards would say i missed so often the greatness of god because i was so worried about doing it right I was so worried about what I needed to be doing. Pride is just being a better perfectionist. It's being a more perfect perfectionist. Wow. 
So I have a question at each one of these. You'll see on your handout there a section for a question there. Here's the question for this section that here in a moment when you're going to have time at your tables, uh, I want you to answer. But I want you to write it down now so you have it. Here's the question. You ready? What is pride driving me to do? What is pride driving me to do? I think the second thing that Jonathan Edwards would say to us is that your knowledge of Scripture will define your life. Your knowledge of Scripture will define your life. In Genesis chapter 2, Adam and Eve are faced with a decision. Serpent comes here in a little bit, and he says to them to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God has said to Adam and Eve, as you all know, you can eat from any tree, but don't eat. We have a pillar. It's just perfect. From the tree in the middle of the garden, okay? It's a great illustration. Don't eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. I love that God didn't put the tree somewhere else. He didn't hide it. He didn't put it up the block. He didn't say, whatever you do, don't hike five miles up the road and go eat of that tree. He said, don't, I put a tree in here somewhere that's bad. Just make sure you don't get that one. That would be tough. God says, it's right there. It's right there. Let's just make it simple. It's right there. Don't eat of that one. The serpent comes and says, no, don't, don't listen to that. It's all good. Eat of the tree. It won't be a problem. And Adam and Eve are faced with the decision that you and I are faced with every single day. You see, a long time ago, the enemy created this idea that the great cosmic battle that's going on is good and evil. And can I tell you that the the Lord didn't come into the world to fight evil. In fact, Jesus stands before Pilate in John 18, 37. Jesus stands before Pilate. And to make it really simple, Jesus says, for this reason I came into the world. You know what it was? Was it to save men? That's not what he said. Was it to set the captives free? That's not what he said. Jesus said it was for this reason I came into the world, to testify to the truth. You see, the great cosmic battle that's going on is not good versus evil. It's truth versus lies. It's truth versus lies. And each of us has a personal worldview in which part of that is truth and part of that is lies. It's really only been one person who perfectly got it right, and that was Jesus. He's the only one that said, all that I have in my worldview is completely truth. I have no lies in there anywhere. As Eric said a while ago, I'm from Missouri, and so I am a St. Louis Cardinals fan. I'm not a Kansas City Royals fan. Did not really enjoy the World Series, but that's okay. I'm a St. Louis Cardinals fan. I am a St. Louis Cardinals fan because my dad and my grandfather and my uncles were St. Louis Cardinals fans. And to be honest, that's probably the only reason. You're probably a fan of a team because someone influential in your life liked that team probably because of where you lived. And if you had grown up somewhere else, and if I had grown up somewhere else, and if the people in my family that influenced me liked some other team, I probably would have liked some other team. But I liked them, and I developed this worldview, if you will, of the St. Louis Cardinals being the greatest team on earth, which, by the way, they are. It's what being a fan is, okay? Because of the influence that's around me. That begins with our parents. Jonathan Edwards was no different. Jonathan Edwards grew up in a very pious, very strict home where you would hear very much 
to the letter of the law and scripture. That's who he became. He grew up with a worldview that he got from his parents. You grew up with a worldview that you got from your parents. It's where we start. No one in our life is more influential. Research tells us no one is more influential in the life of a child until about the age of 17 or 18 than their parents, even in 2015. It's not media. It's not friends. So if you're a dad and your child is, is not yet 17 or 18, can I tell you, you're the greatest influence in their life, whether you feel like it or not. And, and Timothy Edwards was the greatest influence in Jonathan Edwards' life. And he poured into him this idea of this is what it means to know truth. This is what truth is. But I think what Jonathan Edwards would say, and I think all of us would agree with this, is that the role of maturity is then for Scripture to refine our worldview. If the battle is truth and lies, truth is found where? It's found in God's Word. And if we want to refine our worldview, if we want to have more truth and less lies, where do we find that? We find that in Scripture. And so I think Jonathan Edwards would say, and I think he would yell from the, from the rooftops here, Scripture is going to define your life. Scripture is going to define the truth that you understand and what you have. R.C. Sproul said this, Truth is that which conforms with fact or reality. Truth is that which conforms with fact or reality. This idea that you can have your truth and I can have my truth, doesn't work. Because truth is what is fact or reality. Is that piano there? It is or it isn't. Well, you know, I'm looking this way, so in my mind, in my truth, that piano doesn't exist. That's great for you, but guess what? It still does. Because truth is about fact and about reality. And the truth we find in Scripture is the reality of the universe. And Scripture defines that. Our our decisions about truth and lies is based upon our interaction with, our relationship with Scripture. You know, it's amazing, no matter what we do in the Christian life, no matter where we go, no matter who we talk to, no matter what podcast we listen to, no matter what blog we read, no matter what books we read, no matter what preacher we listen to, no matter what, we cannot escape the idea that we desperately need the Word of God in our life. And your interaction with Scripture and my interaction with Scripture will define who we are. And I think Jonathan Edwards found that to be true as he talked about his conversion experience in 1 Timothy 117, we're going to talk about here in just a second. So here's my question for you on this one. How are the decisions I am making informed by Scripture? How are the decisions I am making informed by Scripture? You know, sometimes life goes so fast, we don't often stop and think about the decisions we made, maybe like we should? Are are the decisions we're making informed by Scripture, by truth? Are they defining our worldview? Third thing I think Jonathan Edwards would say, and this is kind of going back to um, the previous point, is this. True salvation is found in the greatness of God, not in the greatness of our works. 
True salvation is found in the greatness of God, not in the greatness of our works. You know, there was a lot of times in Jonathan Edwards' young life where he thought he was converted. In fact, there's, there's this really interesting cycle that goes on of Jonathan Edwards really believing that he has come to full conversion and either through his own evaluation of his life or through the evaluation of his father, he comes to the conclusion, no, I wasn't. So I've got to go back and find conversion. I've got to find true salvation. In fact, when Jonathan Edwards was nine, like most nine-year-olds, he built a fort in the woods for prayer. It's a joke, see if you're awake, okay? I know no nine-year-old that does that, okay? You're like, I was supposed to do that at nine? Nobody told me that. Nine years old, the guy builds a fort in the, in, the, in the woods for him and his friends to go and pray. And they would go five times a day. I don't know how they went to school. Five times a day, they're out there in this fort. They're praying. And, and John and Edward said later, he goes, I knew that was my moment of conversion until a few months later they used it to play Indians. Prayer went away, and they went back to being boys. And he said, I knew that conversion did not come. He wrestled with this. What do I have to do? What if, you know, in a, in a world, again, I want you to see this Puritan world that Jonathan Edwards is growing up in, in which everything you do is under a microscope, and everything that you do is considered to go, are you truly converted or are you not? Yes, you are. No, you're not. Yes, you are. No, you're not. And that was going on in the life of Jonathan Edwards. He was constantly battling that. But after years of pursuing God through the rightness of his actions, he came to 1 Timothy 1.17. I want to read that for us. <clears throat> because this is what he was reading, and he, God just captured him here. God captured him through these words. This is what it says. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You hear the majesty in that? You hear the greatness, the bigness, the largeness of God in that? And in that, it captured <clears throat> Jonathan Edwards. You know, to know that God is holy and to know that God is loving is great. But to experience God as holy and to experience God as loving is something totally different. To know with your mind that God is a holy God. That as it says of Jesus in John 1, he is light and there is no darkness in him. God's a holy God. And to know at the same time from 1 John that it says that God is love. And you know those things in your mind. But to be faced, perhaps as as, uh, Isaiah was in Isaiah 6, with the holiness of God. To say, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Now I've experienced the holiness of God. I have come into a relationship with God that has allowed me to see his nature affecting who I am. It's where I move from just a knowledge of God to a knowing God, a relationship. Now, we throw that around a lot. Um, if you don't live in the evangelical world, which we do, being a part of a, um, you know, kind of the, the churches that, that, that we're a part of, um, this is really foreign to you. This summer I was at a camp with my daughter, and I was there with several men who 
were not involved in evangelical churches. And by evangelical, I mean churches that emphasize a relationship with Jesus Christ primarily. And the first night, the speaker talked about abiding in Christ. It's like, man, that was a fantastic talk. It was so good on abiding in Christ. These two other guys were in the, in the cabin with me, two, two other dads, and they said, what were they talking about? I've never heard such garbage. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. A relationship with Christ, abiding in Christ? What is that? And I was taken back. Really? Wow, brother, do you know what you're missing? Jesus is so much more than the, the things about God, but a relationship with him. I just want you to know that that was a battle that Jonathan Edwards was fighting. And he came to this place and he said, Jesus, I see you as a person. Not a person like us. Not bringing Jesus down to our level. But I see you as a person. I see you as someone I can have a real, genuine relationship with. And that's who I need. That's what I want. In John 17, 3, Jesus says, This is eternal life, that, you may, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. In Matthew chapter 7, I want to read this passage to you, because knowing God, I think Jonathan Edwards, if he said anything else, he would say this, knowing God is the greatest thing. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, it says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, so you'll recognize them by their fruit. So, you know, you get from that a whole lot of it's what we do, it's, it's the way we behave, and, and there's a lot of truth in that. There's a lot of truth. That, that a, a person who claims the name of Christ but shows no fruit, you've got to kind of wonder about that. But as it goes on, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, catch this, I never knew you. I never knew you. The standard by which Christ will judge us is, did he know us? Depart from me, I never knew you. In Philippians 3.10, Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings to become like him in his death. I want to know Christ. I don't just want to know about him. I don't want to just do things that make people think I know him. I want to know Christ. When Jonathan Edwards read 1 Timothy 1.17, I think something happened in him that had never happened before. For the very first time in his life, he knew Christ. And it changed him forever. Psalm 34, 8 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see 
the Lord is good. You know, if someone found out that I was from Texas and they said to me, hey, you know that guy that plays for the Texans? It's a really big guy, and he plays on defense. He's really, really good. You mean J.J. Watt? Yeah, that guy. You know that guy? I'm like, yeah, I know who that is. Okay, now what do you know about him? Well, I know he drives a Ford truck. <laughs> I know he shops at H-E-B. Uh, I know he has a dog, at least some of the times. And I think I may know what his mom looks like, but I'm not sure if that's his mom or an actor in the, in the commercial about ice cream. So that's the things I know about him. They go, oh, that's cool that you know J.J. Watt. I don't know J.J. Watt. He says, what about Eric Reed? Well, I know Eric Reed. I know he loves quilting. I know his favorite color is mauve. Uh, I know his favorite thing to watch is PBS. Oh, I'm sorry. I wasn't supposed to share that, so. <laughs> That's right. Uh, well, sue me. <laughs> but there's a difference. You know, if I walk up to J.J. Watt and I say, hey, J.J., how you doing? He's going to go, oh. He's, you know what he's going to say? This is really funny. He, he probably would say this, depart from me, I never knew you. <laughs> I don't, who are you? Now, if I walk up to Eric Reed, hopefully if he's in a good mood, Eric's going to say, hey, Doug, how you doing? Because he knows me. There's such a difference. Do you know God? Here's my question for you that I want you all to wrestle with. How do I know that I know God? How do I know that I know God? Eternal life will not be found in anyone else or anything else other than to know God. Now to the King Eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The verse that changed the life of Jonathan Edwards. The verse that allowed Christ to become personal to him. That allowed him to become more than just a lot of things to do. I think it made a difference. I want you to see this quote that's at the bottom of your page. God's purpose for my life. Jonathan Edwards said this. God's purpose for my life was that I have a passion for God's glory. And that I have a passion for my joy in that glory. And that these two are one passion. These two are one passion. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We don't say that flippantly. We don't say that religiously. But Lord, with the privilege of entering into a genuine relationship with you, because we know your real and abiding love in us, we can say in return we love you. And so, God, as men, we need your help. Lord, we pray that as we walk through these questions this morning, that you would shape us, that you would change us. God, that you would bring about the purposes that you have for us in our life. Lord, whenever we read of a man like Jonathan Edwards and we read of the things he accomplished and the things he did, there is... Something inside of us, I think, often is men that gets fired up. Lord, we often are fired up by achievement. And we hear of the many things that happened in Jonathan Edwards' life, but yet, Lord, often what is known of Jonathan Edwards is from the books that he wrote, and he wrote those books 
from a small church after being fired from prominence. So God, allow us this morning to know that the path that you have for our life is good. And Lord, the greatest things, the greatest impact that you may want to have through us is something that you very much first have to do in us. So Lord, thank you for this man, for all his imperfections, for his struggle with pride, for his struggle with being spiritually arrogant and judgmental. And Lord, for allowing him to see that, to wrestle with that, and to know, Lord, in the end that you are great enough to overcome that in him, as you are great enough to overcome that in us. So I pray this morning, Lord, that that's exactly what you would do. And it's in your name that we pray. Thank you for joining us on this week's podcast. We hope you can join us in person. We meet Thursday mornings at 6.30 a.m. in the garden room of Houston's First Baptist Church. For more details and to register, you can visit us on the web at warriorsheart.org. That's warriorsheart.org. Have a great day.